Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor, City Journal. I'm Aaron Severium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. Aaron, how are you doing today? How am I doing today, Charles? So uh, think is, it was like a, it's a deep, very, it's a very deep question. question deep how question. truly how is any of us is doing? Yeah, being doing. Yes. What does it mean to do to be? No, I'm I'm okay. I I. This is actually a, this is actually an issue that I'm dealing with with my kid. He has this he has this book about about backhoes, and it says, "What is a backhoe?" And then he says, "Backhoes dig, dig, dig," which is not actually an answer to the question of what a backhoe is. It's it's a statement of what a backhoe does. Well, well, Charles, some would say that too, that there are certain kinds of there's a certain class of X that can only be defined by reference to X's actions. I mean, I mean, purpose is an important. I mean, come on, read your Aristotle. Something's telos, which is intimately related to what it does, is itself part of the essence of the thing. Come on, Charles. I don't think that's I, what the concept of backhoe is. Well, it's it's part of the definition. Anyway, uh, I'm. I'm okay. Speaking of esoteric philosophical discussions, I was I was recently at some panel which dealt with immigration in the United States, which oh. was largely con. What was oh. interesting was that a, a mutual friend of ours, Helen Andrews, went on the spiel about how we should not be accepting high-skilled immigrants, especially high-skilled Asian immigrants for various cultural reasons. It was kind of like a, a, a steel man, slightly more carefully worded version of arguments that Amy Wax has made and gotten in trouble for. So it was controversial, but it was, but it was interesting okay. because it, you know, she did, I think, bring up a lot of interesting points, right, about how certain immigrant groups tend to vote as a block, in particular for one party, the Democratic Party. And one of the things, you know, I ended up asking her for which she, and frankly, I think, Nobody on the panel had a great answer was why have Asians sort of continued to vote largely for Democrats and kind of been this fairly reliable Democratic voting bloc where Hispanics, which historically people thought of as a very Democratic voting bloc, have now really swung to the right and and no longer seem anywhere near that confident. So there was some interesting... The, the the problem with demographics destiny thesis is that it, it, it assumes an unchanging character to the political preferences of the demographics. Right. If it's all a composition problem, you have to make certain underlying assumptions. Right, right. Well, so, you know, I thought that was in a vignette that that was I was worth sharing because of what we're going to talk about today. Sure. And that is in part why Hispanics are fleeing the Democratic Party. But really what we're going to be talking about is sort of the Democratic Party's woke turn and what it has done to politics in this country. You know, it's 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 a commonplace at this point to say everyone is expecting a red wave in November. You know, I think it's fairly well established among our listeners that so-called woke rhetoric is not just confined to college campuses, right? We have the Biden administration using terms like birthing people in official government documents. We have them trying to deny white restaurant owners and farmers pandemic relief and encouraging the race-based allocation of monoclonal antibodies. As I think we've talked about on the show. Most Americans don't like this crap. The Democratic Party strategist James Carville has really blasted his party for being too woke. He's saying that that's going to cost him elections. This is a familiar story. But what is interesting is that there's sort of this conventional wisdom that wokeness is bad for Democrats, and yet they keep doing it. 
And so today we'll introduce our guest in a minute, but today we're going to basically be talking about why the Democrats seem to be taking positions that are electorally disadvantageous to them, and then kind of trying to game out what that is going to do to America's two-party system in the medium to long run. So Charles, obviously this is a big topic, but you know, what's your, what's your take on this? Well, I mean, I'll say just to sort of frame the conversation, I'm very interested in the durability of these trends. I think it's, it's, it seems right that at least in the next election cycle, Republicans will do, will overperform their recent historic margins with groups not commonly associated with the Republican base. They'll do better with Hispanics, they'll do better with Asians, better with Blacks than they have historically in recent history. And my question is like, I think there's a lot that we can read into this. I think we can tell a story about it's sort of institutional around the Democratic Party. We can say it's it's a change in Hispanic voting behavior in particular. How much of this is that versus thermostatic equilibrium? Simply the fact that there's an unpopular president and gas prices are very high. You know, I that that, that that's the open question for me. What I'm what I'm hoping to dive into. What are you What are you interested in? Right. Well, so so you know, on this show, we often talk look at problems through the prism of incentives and in particular top-down incentives one of our early earlier and i think better you know known episodes was with gail harriet who talks about how civil rights law spurred the development of these anti-harassment bureaucracies by making corporations financially liable for harassment and then you know there's sort of this logic that sets in where the bureaucracies just expand expand on our very first episode we had max eden talking about how the obama education department kind of you know, created carrot and stick incentives for schools to go woke, in part by threatening their federal funding. To, to me, what's interesting is what is the Democratic Party's incentive to go woke? Because most voters don't like wokeness, and the party is theoretically accountable to its voters. And yet, it is taking positions that we know from very rigorous polling data, just the vast majority of Americans, and in, indeed, the majority of Democrats think are nuts. Right. So, you know, is it just that there are true believers in the party who think screw the voters or and this is really what I want to get into with our with our guest, because he's very well positioned to talk about it. You know, is, is this sort of a function of the Democratic Party's reliance on these well-organized interest groups and nonprofits, especially think tanks for kind of policy ideas and almost mimetic material that shapes their agenda? It seems to me that you know, this is a case in which maybe we're seeing not so much top-down incentives, you know, causing wokeness, because the Democratic Party is the top. There's nothing really above it, aside maybe certain laws. It's more sort of this almost bottom-up process of, you know, well-organized interest groups that are themselves shaped by top-down incentives, then kind of feeding back up into the Democratic Party apparatus and kind of hijacking it and pressuring it to do things that the vast mass of kind of disorganized, diffuse voters don't really want. So I'm interested in that kind of process and also sort of the the prospects of, of disrupting it. So today, to talk about all this, we are joined by Roy Teixeira. Roy, in 2004, wrote a very famous book called The Emerging Democratic Majority, which argued that America's demographics were trending in the Democrats' favor. If the party played its cards right, the book argued, 
the party could dominate the country effectively for a generation and have, you know, almost a, a, a you know, full lock on government. Ray identifies as a social democrat, and for many years, he was a scholar at the Center for American Progress, a very progressive think tank. But last month, he jumped ship for the center-right American Enterprise Institute, and he told Politico that the cultural milieu of progressive think tanks like his own sends me running screaming from the left. So we're going to talk to Roy both about sort of the longer arc of the Democratic Party, but also about his own journey. So Roy, welcome to Institutionalized, and perhaps we should also say welcome to the dark side. You know, ah, gone over, so you've gone yeah. over. You've gone over to AEI, you know, the, 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 yeah, the, really, one of the uh, nexus hard, points of the right wing. Rightists. Yeah, 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 yeah. The deep alt-right AEI. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, even when you go in dark places, there's plenty of light that you look for. So that's my attitude. So I should just correct you on one thing, Aaron, that American Democratic Majority came out of 2002. Not 2004. Ah, okay. Okay. Might have come out of 2004. Okay, yeah. But anyway, yeah, yeah, I mean, you correctly characterized our, you know, the very, very broad strokes of the argument about the transformation of the country, and really not just demographically, but also ideologically, and in terms of some of the structural economic changes, we thought that by and large, this should move the country in the direction of the Democrats, as you say, if they played their cards right. And they practiced what we called at the time progressive centrism, which would be sticking close enough to the center of gravity of public opinion in the country to take advantage of the ways in which it's becoming more progressive, but not get so far away from that that you would start damaging your, your, your level of support with key constituencies. And we particularly emphasized, immediately forgotten, of course, that the white working class, which is an immense demographic group, even if declining, and much more and extremely important in certain states that are very important, it would be very critical to maintain a solid minority vote and for that vote not to have go south on you. In other words, you weren't going to probably carry the white working class vote, but you couldn't start losing it by 10, 15, 20, 25 points and onward because then the political arithmetic just didn't work. So in a way, part of my work at the Center for American Progress over the years was trying to point out both the potential strengths the Democrats had to build in and their potential weaknesses, and that those needed to be addressed as a, just a, an aspect of political reality, and that therefore Democrats needed to have, you know, be progressive but moderate at the same time, and that they need to make a real effort to reach out to the constituencies that weren't that friendly to them. And I would say that I did not entirely succeed in that endeavor to try to convince them to pay attention to it. I mean, of course, things got worse after 2016 and Trump's election. But even before then, as I think I might have mentioned in the Politico interview, to even talk about the white working class was considered borderline racist in a lot of you know center-left think tank circles, because that was then not centering people of color, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I just thought, well, hey, I mean, I'm just telling you what's going on here. I'm just telling you what the realities of the American electorate are. And I think you're making a mistake if you think all of these white non-college voters who've been moving to the Republicans are simply a bunch of stone-cold racists, and that's the only reason why they possibly vote for them. I thought it was much more complex than that, and it had to do to some extent with the evolution of the American economic model that people on the left side of the spectrum tend to turn neoliberalism, but was considered to have affected communities all over the country, obviously not just non-white communities, white communities well, 
These people had a lot to complain about. They were pissed off at elites. I just didn't see how you could characterize all this as, as racism, even within the context of, the, of the, the way in which they were looking at the world. And I, but again, I think that really got much worse after Trump got elected because the debate on the center left about what was the meaning of the move toward Trump quickly devolved into a very simple interpretation. These voters were activated by Trump's racism and xenophobia. And that's the only reason why they voted for Trump, because, of course, we know no right thinking person could possibly consider voting for Trump. And that tended to push Democrats in the direction of let's not worry about that stuff. Let's not worry about these voters. It's full throttle ahead with, you know, the way we think the country is being transformed and the way we're going to advocate for that transformation. Whereas I thought the warning signs were all very clear in 2016. And we can discuss this, but I think it got quite a bit worse during the hashtag resistance phase up to and including the George Floyd moment in summer of 2020. So I want to, we had a different, I had a different initial question lined up, but just sort of building off of that, I want to, I want to turn the clock back to 2002 because particularly, even, even as exceptional as the status quo is for the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party of the 90s through the early 2000s was itself a sort of peculiar, a sort of peculiar creature, I think for a couple of reasons. One is the the Clinton, the sort of Clinton moderation consensus. I pointed out to somebody yesterday, or the other day, that the religious, the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act was sponsored by Chuck Schumer in the House uh, and passed by overwhelming bipartisan majorities. They should, they do the same thing. The '94 Crime Bill, DOMA, is passed on a bipartisan basis. Um, uh-huh. There's this, there's this crazy moderation on on social issues that I think is a reflection of basically the shocking ascendancy of conservatism in the 80s and the early 90s that you know this this once fringe political movement captured the white house captured a variety of other institutions congress in the 90s so this is a little context which my response is you're you're imagining when when i think i i, I think when you were writing in the early 2000s the democratic party looked almost like a a very peculiar democratic party one that has not i think existed Certainly, at any other time in the post-war, in post-war America, plausibly not in the 20th century, is that a model that you want to go back to? Can we really learn anything from the Clinton era Democratic Party, and or how how sui generis, how how exceptional was it? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a good question, and a lot of people are debating what can we learn from the Clinton years, from the rise of the DLC. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? I mean, I think the big thing that they got right is the first thing you mentioned, that they realized that image of the Democratic Party on a variety of social issues around crime and race and other things was was off-putting to the median voter. And if Democrats actually wanted to get elected and do stuff, they had to moderate that image. And even if it meant they couldn't quite be as vocal about some things like gay rights as many people in the party wanted to do, I think they correctly realized that at this point, for example, with something like gay marriage, it was clear which way the public opinion was shifting and cohort replacement was having an effect. While they couldn't do, you know, they couldn't push on that right now, someday they probably would be able to. It's time to wait. It's time to get things done. And I think that was congenial to the party on the crime bill in 1994. I mean, we have to realize it's coming off of a you know massive crime spike in the 80s. And there was actually quite a consensus that it's actually like a really bad idea have criminals running around all over the place. And in fact, you do need to be somewhat tough on crime. And 
it, I mean, maybe they didn't get everything right, but you know, the black community was up in arms about this stuff. Something people completely forget as if this was just some, some sort of terrible plot on the part of white racists who control the democratic party and maybe the entire power structure to put black people in jail. There was a lot of black people saying, you know, the level of crime in our community is not acceptable. We need to do something about it. Now, that doesn't mean the results of this were entirely, you know, beneficent, but it did respond to a real, a real sense of concern among wide variety, you know, wide constituencies in the public. And so they got that right. I think you needed to respond to actually existing public opinion on these cultural issues. You can't afford to have the image of the Democratic Party be too associated with sort of left cultural extremism. You know, of course, we have the Clinton's famous sister soldier moment, which I think was actually a good idea. But I think the thing that was a little odd and, and sort of unstable about the Clinton coalition and consensus was I don't think it really had an economic theory of the case that it was really worth very much in terms of how you would actually mm -hmm. solve the rising inequality of the country and the problems that were happening to these left behind communities. There was a, a certain amount of third way style faith and let the market rip and we'll sort of siphon off some of the benefits to distribute to people and everything, everybody will be happy. And I think the ways in which that was pursued, some of the dereg stuff in the financial sector, I think there were real problems with it. I don't think Democrats had much of a great theory about how to, how to make that happen and change the economic trajectory of the country. I mean, that basically it was you know, sort of Robert Rubin style economics. And there's a lot of problems with that, I think. So that was always what I disagreed with about Mm -hmm. the Clinton approach, but I thought they were probably spot on, basically, on a lot of this other stuff. And now we have an odd reversal. Everybody's rejecting neoliberal economics, maybe like too much. <laughs> and now everybody's, you know, screw it. Let's, let's, you know, let's swing for the fences at every cultural issue you can name, because not to do so would be to be on the wrong side of history. And did I mention that I think you're a bigot for not wanting to do that? So that's kind of where we are now. It's a funny Reversal. Right. I think it's still unstable, just like the Clinton coalition was unstable. Well, so, so what's interesting is that it seems like in the 90s, there was the, the, whatever the internal structure of the party, it was clearly constituted such that Democrats were able to pivot fairly quickly and, and kind of keep be responsive to sort of changing cultural conditions on the ground. Maybe that's going to happen in like a year or two. It could right now, mm -hmm. but but the complaint seems to be, it, it, you know, it. Many people are arguing. Well, like, look, we we've had like a quite a few years of this now, where just the left has gone crazy, and they aren't really pivoting, at least not at the certainly not at the level that Clinton did. So, what do you think accounts for that difference? Well, that is a profound question, brother. Severium. And my colleague, co-author and I, John Judas, are trying to address this in our forthcoming book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? We're trying to unpack that as best we can, because it really is rather extraordinary, the extent to which these cultural forces have become unleashed and have, you know, not only hegemonized the Democratic Party, but hegemonized sort of wide swaths of the nonprofit, foundation, media, it's kind of like, as I, as I often put it, they control the commanding heights of cultural production, which is a very powerful position. So it's, it's, it's amazing how this has happened. And yeah, you could get how it might sneak into the, you know, the, the cultural production area, given the kind of cohorts that are going into that area, given the 
apparently craven behavior of the people who control these institutions. I mean, they're following the zeitgeist in their world, right? In their world of liberalish professional type people. This is what good people do. This is what we believe. We're going to use the power we have to push the things we want. So it's like an ideological takeover. But why is this working? And I think this gets to your question. Why is this working so well within the Democratic Party and an entity which in theory is designed to win elections? What, what, you know, how does this, if it is in fact a somewhat bizarre theory of electoral progress and how you win, how did it manage to inveigle so many people into it? Now you can see how if you're AOC and you're you know, in a plus 25 Democratic district, you can say whatever the hell you want. And it's true of a lot of these reps from heavily blue districts, particularly the younger ones who don't feel there's any penalty to be had from being, you know, as, as left as they want to be on these issues. And in fact, some of them got their seats because they took out more moderate politicians by being to their left. It's a little bit harder to understand how the party as a whole, which still includes many, many moderate members, and how leaders like Schumer and Pelosi, and of course, our beloved president, Joe Biden, seems to have been pushed in this direction where they don't feel like they can stand up to the ideology. They don't feel like they can take a quasi-reasonable stand on trans issues, on race issues, on immigration issues, and a variety of things that are really pretty, you know, where, where the stance, the official current stance of the Democratic Party, a lot of this stuff is actually considerably to the left of the median voter who presumably you want to reach, including the median voter and constituencies that are supposedly important to the Democrats' future, like, as you were saying, Charles Hispanic. So what's going on? Why are they not getting the signals? And I guess my theory about this is, I think they are, they're just suppressing their processing of the signals, and it kind of awaits an exogenous shock to the system to push them in the other direction. But I think for right now, we're not going to see a lot of change until that shock hits the system. And just to be even more pessimistic about it, you can definitely make an argument at this point that the abortion issue will at the margin help the Democrats in this election. They're going to run on all Republicans everywhere all the time want to ban abortion, which is extremely unpopular. And in a way, this will make them lazy and unwilling to confront the ways in which the Democratic Party actually is too far to the left on a lot of these social cultural issues. It'll be like found money. They'll, so that may produce a mixed result in the election, where they'll say they only lose 20 seats in the House, but they actually hold the Senate, and there are signs of strength in various areas of the country. And I think this will both increase the class polarization in the electorate, probably, and it will strengthen the hand of the cultural left in the Democratic Party, because A, they'll dominate the House caucus more, and B, you know, they'll, they'll have these sort of ready-made raps about how we kept our, our Senate seat. So even though the Democrats lose control of Congress, it's not hard to see how this is spun by the left of the party as a tremendous victory for pushing back against the ultra-MAGA parts of the you know, Republican Party. There are no ultra-MAGA parts of the Republican Party, I might add, in this worldview. It is entirely, and with no exceptions, an ultra-MAGA party. So, you know, I think they'll feel vindicated to some extent. We'll see. So, so it sounds like part of what's going on is that polarization makes it very easy to kind of rationalize the counterproductive woke behavior 
And that is a difference, I think, between the 90s and now, right? We've gotten more polarized. So that would be a plausible explanation. But mm-hmm. I mean, you said something else I want to drill down on, which is you think that they actually do get the signals, but they just sort of don't act on them and suppress them. So like what, you know, do you think that that's just because like Joe Biden in his heart genuinely believes that, you know, the average voter is wrong to have a moderate stance on trans issues? Or is it or is it more a function of kind of interest groups and institutional stakeholders that exert pressure and power in various ways in the party? Like, like what, why is it that they're sort of ignoring the I think it's more the latter than the former, but you know, there's, there's a well-known phenomenon where if you start saying things often enough because you're under pressure to say them and you feel it's necessary for you to take that position after a while, you start to believe Mm-hmm. that position. So I wouldn't be surprised if some of the wacky things that Biden is saying it about LGBTQIA+, he's actually used that phrase, people, and these regs that are coming down on trans issues in the administration, if he you know, has kind of talked himself into believing, well, it's just basically a civil rights issue. I mean, what the hell? You know, I don't know much about it. Sounds a little weird to me, but you know, let's go for it. So I think there's a lot of that where pressure to conform and avoid fights becomes sort of grudging belief after a while. But certainly we don't see a lot of profiles and courage on some of the hotter button parts of the socio-cultural issue constellation where the Democrats have moved very significantly far left. We just don't see a lot of people standing up and saying, you know, this is bullshit, right? And this is kind of what I said in my Politico interview. I'm one thing that sends me out of this, that left institutional space is the difficulty of calling bullshit on this stuff and having an actual conversation. You know, it's just really a good idea that we're pushing like, you know, to use a transition example, personal pronouns, and we're uncritical and gender affirming care. Maybe it's not a good idea to have gender ideology taught to like, you know, first graders. I mean, there are some legitimate concerns here. Parents may in fact, you know, not be making it all up. And yeah, we don't, you know, there's extremism on the other side too, but don't we want to be in the middle on this, like taking the reasonable position? And I'm, I'm just telling you, it's really hard to have those conversations. Really hard. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems, it seems like, and this is a theme that we've returned to over and over again. I've written about, Aaron's written about, a lot of this is at root, for lack of a term, a staffing problem. And I think you see this in reporting in the public and private sector, that a lot of the the drive for shift comes from not the top of the totem pole, but the guys who are on the bottom, highly educated, uh-huh. elite, liberal class, people who is who increasingly care about. I I put it in a piece once. They they, they care about wokeness as non pecuniary compensation. That that com- compliance with their values is as important, if not more important, than 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 money. I I we we can sort of dig into the why of that. Although I think that's a big can of worms. I sort of want to ask. An orthogonal question, which is, does there come a point at which capture by these interests is outweighed by uh, is 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 outweighed by basically the power of the median voter theorem, right? Like like what happened with Clinton was the Democratic Party, and what happened with Reagan is the Democratic Party turned itself into a rump. It it you know it 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 selected sort of people who were well outside of the median voter as it's uh, both left and meeting voters, their standard bearers. And eventually the way that, you know, Clinton's proposition was, I'm going to run on the strategies that we know will win. So do you think, do you think, is, 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 is this a problem that burns itself out of, out eventually? Does, you know, does, does the stranglehold of, 
of actors to whatever weekend simply by virtue of that force or is this runaway i think there are a lot of people talk to who are pessimists who think there's a runaway problem it's never going to go away is there a runaway here that we aren't accounting for yeah i want to say never say never i mean this is a political marketplace you would think at some point there's however grudging a you know reaction to those signals now it may take a while it may not happen after 2022 it may not happen after 2024 but you would think that at some point it would happen. The problem is it may actually happen on the other side too. If you're looking at it in a partisan framework, it's not at all clear that the Republicans are always going to be exactly the party they are today. And they're not going to realize they're leaving money on the table by having all these Trumpy type extremists dictating the image of the party. And maybe that party will start to change. Maybe there's a you know, soft, sort of reasonable, reasonably hard, but not like too hard on social issues, DeSantis type, you know, populist. Uh, maybe it's the Marco Rubio, maybe it's Josh Hawley. Maybe there's a debate in the party where they start to realize we're a working class party now. We need to reach these people, but we can't be too crazy. We can't give the Democrats too much ammo. So we're going to really change our image. It's, you know, that doesn't seem like it's a long coach for Trump without Trump. Uh, Trump isn't without Trump. Trump isn't without Trump. Yeah. So uh, can have off the edges. I mean, I'm not holding my breath on that one. But on the other hand, as we're kind of discussing, it's one would be ill advised to hold one's breath on the attack to the center and cultural issues by a Demo the De Democratic Party, because these people do seem to be so entrenched. As you point out, a lot of it is staffing the younger cohorts who come in not exactly a random sample of today's young people. They're all highly educated. They tend to be super liberal on these woke issues, and they're quite intransigent about it. And for them, it's not just, as you point out, it might be non-cutunary compensation, but it's also like, usually people came into these institutions, and particularly anything connected with electoral politics, you know, is sort of accepting the general theory is we want to win. <laughs> you know, that's what we're here for. We got to get the shit done. We got to beat the other side. I think for a lot of these people, that is secondary. You know, it's not really much of a theory of the case about how to win. It's a theory about how to live, you know, the lived experience of being in this organization, the transformation that needs to happen in the hearts and minds of, of all the people who were unenlightened. And, and by necessity, I think that takes you away from thinking about things in a pragmatic, well, how the hell do we win kind of sense. It's like a different way of looking at the world. And I think it produces, to the extent you have a theory of winning, it becomes extremely lazy. It's like a hand wave. Well, you know, there'll be high turnout, right? Our people will come out in droves and everybody, you know, right. just trust me on this. You know, right. there are no downsides to being as, as left as we want to be on these issues. It's all gravy. You know, the, the tsunami of righteous workers and peasants in America will overwhelm the re forces of reaction. So, I mean, that's kind of stupid, but I think that's as much a theory as a lot of these folks right. have. They're not, really, they're not really like seriously sitting down and thinking about the political arithmetic of these things and how you actually win. And as you pointed out, that is what Clinton managed to kind of shock the Democrat. Well, the Democratic Party had received shocks, but he pushed them in this direction of, okay, it's kind of obvious at this point, we can't keep on doing what we were doing. We have to do something different if, in fact, we want to win. So... Maybe the yeah. Democrats get to that point in the sometime in the near to medium term. We thought Biden, some people thought Biden might be that guy, but I was always skeptical. I thought he was like too much a creature of the party, too much a 
get along kind of guy, whatever the center of gravity of the party is, that's what I'm going to say. I don't want a lot of fights. I don't want to draw a lot of lines. I just want to, you know, don't worry, be happy. It's like the mayor Baba of democratic politics. Right. Well, well so there's, there's one more point on this I, I want to make, just sort of venture mm-hmm. hypothesis and see what you think of it. So, you know, you've talked a lot about the staffing problem and sort of the mission creep in these progressive mm-hmm. organizations too, right? They're, you know, they used to, the Sierra Club used to be about the environment and now it's about how, well, actually environmental issues are really issues of racial capitalism and transphobia and, you know, fill in the blank. You name um, it, yeah. Right. I, I mean, it seems to me that part of what maybe happened is that precisely because the Clinton Democratic Party was successful at moderating, a lot of these socially progressive groups did end up accomplishing a lot of their goals. And I think the most obvious example is with gay marriage, right? You know, Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, it wasn't wasn't quite happening during Clinton, but shortly afterwards, you know, um, Mm -hmm. they kind of take up his spirit of moderation and say, well, we want gay marriage because that's a kind of moderating influence. We want to be accepted etc it's this bourgeois thing and it works spectacularly well it's it's a kind of moderate pitch for gay rights that ends up creating a seismic shift in public opinion in just a generation real to an almost unprecedented degree in american history but then you have this entire ngo non-complex that suddenly has like accomplished this goal by being super moderate this amazing goal and then they're like well crap what do we do and that's where mm-hmm. sort of the incentive comes in, where it's like, well, you have to come up with a new cause. And so then the human rights campaign pivots to trans and you see this with other things. So, I mean, one way to maybe look at this is sort of the Democrats being undone by their own success. This kind of NGO complex through moderation managed to make America more progressive on all sorts of things because it did that. It then found itself in this kind of existential crisis of needing a new reason for being and a new reason to keep the dollars flowing. And that kind of creates an incentive for all these young staffers to sign on to these kind of boutique intersectional activist theories. I mean, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that, particularly, I mean, obviously the best example of this is the trans rights issue, which, you know, sort of we see the main gay rights, gay marriage promoting organization pivoting Mm -hmm. almost instantly to sort of defending trans, basically pushing you know, the trans rights thing way beyond, you know, let's not discriminate against people who, you know, are that way. They pretty much absorb the whole and start pushing the whole gender ideology stuff. And now we're where we are today. And there's actually basically no lines that can or should be drawn on how far this particular issue goes. And so they, they raise tons of money off of this too, right? I mean, as you point out, what do they, what do we do now, now that, you know, there's gay marriage? Well, we got to do something. This is actually like, maybe this will work and it does work. It actually produces a lot of support. And, you know, obviously staffers respond to that. I mean, I think an interesting point that's related to that is I, I always feel like people underestimate like the labor market kind of dynamic here that tends to support this. It's not just that younger, much more liberal people come into these organizations, but it's actually part of the way you get ahead, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. if you want to be in these organizations, you actually have to send the right signals about what you support. And in fact, once you're in the organization, on net, you're better off pushing these issues than not, because it provides a leg up compared to your competitors in that internal labor market. 
So I think we shouldn't underestimate like the flat out payoff aspect of this kind of ideology, which is one reason why it becomes so solidified. People feel they need to do it to get ahead. They get ahead and then they're really not going to back down at it at all. And the other people who are a little leery of it, A, they don't want to get socially ostracized and B, they want to get ahead too. <laughs> so so I think it's it's an unfortunate sort of feedback loop within these internal labor markets that I think people entering from the outside too, who are hitting the labor market, are reading the signals about what you need to do and say and how you need to appear to get the kind of jobs they want in, in this sort of broad cultural media you know, nonprofit sector. Yeah. So let me, let me, let me pivot us just a little bit to talk about a related topic that you've worked on, which is, so, you know, I think there's a, there's a belief among the Republican chattering class that ethnic minorities are uniquely up for grabs in a way that they haven't been. And I think, like, I think this is a little complicated because, you know, you, you look at like Trump's Hispanic voter share and you compare it to like Bush's Hispanic voter share in 2004 and Bush did better. So I'm a little, Look, I, I question the history a little bit, but whatever. That that the ethnic minorities are up for grabs of the Republican Party in a way that they haven't been in some extended period of time. Yeah, fair. And so, so you know, I'm 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 a little skeptical about this. A A for the latter, you know, I I wonder about the historicization there. B because I think that a, a lot of what we're seeing is people responding not to culture issues but just to pocketbook issues. But on the other hand, you know, I. I, I like to believe it is possible to create not just a, a flash in the pan, a temporary a thermostatic equilibrium shift of Hispanics, Blacks, Asians to the Republican coalition, but a durable one. Do you mm -hmm. see that as a meaningful prospect? Is that like, could that happen? Could that not happen? What do you what do you think is the possibility there? Yeah, well, I think it's definitely a, a real possibility. I think, you know, it's always hard to make predictions, especially about the future, but the possibility is clearly there. The Republicans are becoming more of a working class party. There is overlap between the cultural views of non-white working class people and white working class people. The Democrats are obviously changing their image in a way that raises the profile of issues, sociocultural issues on which they're apparent preferences are different than the preferences of moderate to conservative working class voters in these ethnic groups and the moderate to conservative voters are by far the, the overwhelming majority of these working class groups. And then if you look at Hispanics, working class voters are the overwhelming majority of Hispanics. So you can sort of see how if you can build on that by joining it with the economic discontent that a lot of these voters are, are sort of seeing in terms of how they view the Democrats running things. I mean, you're perfectly right. If we look at why Trump did so well among Hispanics in 2020, it's partly the sociocultural issues. And then there's a link to, between that and the way Democrats were talking about the economy and the way Trump was talking about, they don't want to open the country back up. They don't want to let you get back to work. They're going to get rid of oil and gas workers, et cetera, et cetera. These are all, I mean, Hispanics, you know, they're an upwardly mobile working class constituency who wants to get ahead. And if they think the Republicans have a better wrap and, and ultimately practice on that, they'll be like very interested because especially now that the Democrats seem to have lost their minds in a lot of cultural issues. So I think those two things could work together for the Republicans if they could figure out how to address that. I mean, I do think that as you're implying, Charles, it's not going to be enough for the Republicans just to make the obvious points about, you know, our, our, the Democrats, our competitors are completely insane 
on a lot of issues that you care about, crime, immigration, trans, whatever. I mean, that's not where you're coming from. That's where I'm coming from. You know, we, I'm a patriotic, you know, I, I, I believe in the kind of things you believe in, but ultimately people live in the real world and Republicans have to convince these working class voters that in fact, their material situation will improve more under Republicans than under Democrats, which again, going back to Trump before COVID, actually Hispanics had done pretty well. So it's a complex question, right? There's no, there's no magic answer here for either Republicans or the Democrats, but there's only an opening, I think, for Republicans to increase their non-white voter share, especially working class non-white voter share. So, and you don't have to get that big a share of these right. voters to suddenly be in a very strong position within American politics. So, so, so I think uh, I want to ask about a couple other groups that don't get as much attention, but I think are important. And the, the one that really comes to mind, which I started this podcast with, is Asians. You know, Asians on paper, you can make an argument, should be among the most right-wing voters in the country because you think about, you know, there's all this talk about Asian hate and these anti-Asian hate crimes. Well, you mm -hmm. know, let's just say I've, I've seen the videos of Asians being beat up on the streets of New York City and the people beating them up, to, to be blunt, well, they're not they're not Tucker Carlson voters, right? <laughs> okay. You know, yeah, they're not. For sure. And and so you think party of law and order, right? You know, that's tough on crime, including, you know, black crime in the cities would appeal to Asians. And you'd mm -hmm. also think that the party of meritocracy and anti-affirmative action would sure. appeal to Asians, given that they're being locked out of Harvard by sort of woke, you know, quotas. But Asians are still a pretty overwhelmingly Democratic voting bloc. So I'm curious whether you think that's going to change or whether there's something going on there, some incentives that we're missing that actually do make it pretty rational still for Asians to keep voting Democrat, unlike Hispanics, maybe. Right. Well, I mean, the two big things that have tied Asians in the last period of time to the Democrats is, you know, the Democrats are still viewed as being the party that's generally more friendly to immigrants in this heavy, heavily immigrant-based community. And Asians, voters by and large, do not start with any presumption against government action to help people, to provide services, mm -hmm. to invest in the country. They're, they're not an anti-government constituency, and that's really helpful when the Democrats are the party of government, the other party isn't. So, you know, they moved, they, they basically became consolidated for the Democrats around those two big ideas. And of course, there's a certain influence within the Asian community of it's a very highly educated relative to any other part of the population. And the college, as we know, the college educated in general have been moving toward the Democrats becoming more socially liberal. However, right. that's not enough to explain why they're sticking with the Democrats. So my line on that is they're not sticking with the Democrats. And I wrote something on the combination <laughs> voter problem, yeah. which is if you start looking at local results, you're seeing a lot of defections Interesting. From, from the Democrats. Look at New York City results, look at San Francisco results, look at some of the congressional yeah. elections in 2020 in California. I think that's it's unstable. I think we're just seeing the tip of, of the kind right. of defections we may very well see in the near future for the very reasons you're talking about. Especially, I mean, I think the meritocracy thing is huge. I, I think you couldn't ask for an issue on which to repel more Asian voters, educated or non-educated, that basically saying, yeah, you know, you can work your butt off, but you're not necessarily going to get where you want to go because we're going to quota you out. And besides merit, isn't that important anyway? These standardized tests, forget about it. Silly stuff.
Right. Well, it's fundamentally biased. So I think this is incredibly unpopular right. for Asians. And I think we're just starting to see the ice, you know, the sort of pack ice around the Asian population breaking up. And I think right. that we'll see a lot of movement and defections in, in the it, next few years. So I, if, 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 if I can hop in real fast, I want to I wanna ask about, I mean, it seems like basically the big barrier for the GOP is trying to articulate an account of race that voters find persuasive, right? Like, you know, I think, and, and, and maybe you disagree with this. Uh, <laughs> like, it seems like the GOP's problem is that uh, 90, the, the, half of black voters today, or half, half of black response to GSS today will tell you that homosexuality is morally wrong. Not even that they oppose gay marriage, just like having gay sex, morally wrong. Um, and 90% of black voters will go and vote for the Democratic Party. And a lot of that is sort of longstanding affiliation. Some of that's political machination. But some of that's like, you know, the basic sense that the the Democratic, when you care about race, when race, race is a salient issue, the Republican Party loses. Um, my my boss, Rahan Salam, wrote a piece in The Atlantic like a month ago at this point, like you're coming back to about anti-racialism, the... So desire to assimilate into a into a multicultural mainstream is a motivating factor for opposition to wokeness among among minorities. Do you think that to what extent do you think sort of the GOP's rep, rep on race is is a barrier? And if it is a barrier, then is there a way to think about articulating race better from the right, whether it looks like something like quote unquote anti-racialism or something else altogether. How like, you know, if 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 you were advising a Republican strategist on how to pick up Hispanic voters in the next two cycles, how would you tell them to think about this issue? Well, I actually like Raihan's approach. I read that article. I thought it was quite good. I think the problem for the Republicans isn't that they're associated with something like that, but that they're not. There's too much to sure, sure. still still associated to a large extent in a lot of voters' minds, including non-whites, with basically not liking non-whites very much and sort of being opposed to helping them and tolerating extremism within the ranks and that sort of thing. So I think if they could put the kibosh on that kind of stuff and approach Ryan, Ryan is talking about, I think they'd be in pretty good shape. I just think that's hard to do. You know, it's, it's a Democratic coalition has a lot of problems, but so does a Republican coalition. And, you know, there are a lot of people in Republican ranks who also are exhibiting preference falsification in terms of the extent to which they're willing to draw lines against some people in their own party. They, they just don't want to, they don't want to be piled on. They don't want to cause trouble. They don't want to lose votes. Primaries are a big, bigger problem in the Republican Party than the Democratic Party. But I think that's the way to go. And I think that if the Democrats had any sense, they'd have their own version of that. I think... I just don't see how the Democrats get to where they want to go so long as they endorse and practice race essentialism. I think it's a loser. I think it's very far away from where the median voter, how the median voter looks in America, even the median, including the median non-white voter. So I just don't see how this works over the medium to long term. You know, it may work great in certain areas of the country. I think if you're talking about the country as a whole, it doesn't work. But at this point, as, as we've been discussing, really, there are not a lot of signs that it's going to be a big move in that direction of getting away from, from race essentialism because the dominant, the hegemonic view in the Democratic Party is still to raise any questions about this at all means you are a racist. So it's kind of hard to have a conversation when that's the quality of it. You, you said something in passing a few minutes ago I wanted to just 
hone in on real quick, which is mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, Asians, and I think this is true of Hispanics and a lot of other immigrant groups, do not have a kind of presumptive dislike or distrust of government or at least government sort of action on, say, welfare policy in the same way that historically, right, the, the kind of more free market wing of the Republican Party has. But what's interesting, right, is that now there's all this talk on the right about needing to become more status, right? And you even see that with libertarians, right? The state yeah, capacity state libertarians. capacity libertarians. So yeah, friends. yeah, right, right. So, you know, I wonder if, if, if that might be part of the explanation that, you, you know, right now, Asians and some of these other groups kind of perceive the Republicans as just being almost like stupidly and reflexively anti-government. Um, but if the Republic, but if, you know, there's a way to kind of, you know, uh, we're not going to become Singapore, but like, but like, you know, uh, maybe emulate some of the, the nice things that some more competent Asian countries have, right. In terms of our state bureaucracy and structure, whether that too might change the, the dynamic, I, I guess my, my, this is where I'll be a pessimist. I, I think that a lot of Republicans who like that whole state uh-huh. capacity libertarianism thing are a bit naive about how difficult it would be to sort of put that together on the right. Right. Sure. No, that's that's correct. I think that potentially those kinds of philosophies that you see in and around the state capacity libertarians that you see, you know, in journals like American Affairs and American Compass. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting thinking taking place on the heterodox center right. I mean, as I, not sure I said this in political article, but in my opinion, there's more interesting thinking going on there than on the left. <laughs> you know, there's some, you know, some green shoots, the supply side progressivism stuff is kind of promising. The idea we should have an abundance agenda, not an austerity green agenda is a good idea, but it's baby steps. But there's a lot of interesting ferment on the right. The problem is, is as politics, I think what you're saying, Aaron, it doesn't have much purchase. It doesn't have a lot to do with the real debates taking place among actually existing Republican politicians, and that's a problem. You can't get these de- these ideas into the bloodstream of the Republican Party until some people are willing to take them up. But if they could do that, I do think that it would help the Republicans with Asians and Hispanics, who again are not, as you're pointing out, and as I was saying, reflexively anti-government. They would just want to see shit get done, you know? And the Democrats are highly vulnerable on this score at this point because they're more than willing to have government do stuff, but they're pretty weak on figuring out how to make it, make sure it's done effectively and efficiently and the money isn't wasted and it actually produces the results you want, which is why, you know, you get the supply side progressivism kind of trend now among Democrats. It's, it's very much needed. I mean, how are you going to build the country they want to build if it's so friggin' hard to build anything? It doesn't make any sense. So I think that would be congenial to Hispanics and Asians who to the extent they have a presumption in favor of the Democrats because they think government does need to do stuff. It's, you can pry them away if you convince them, yeah, that's what they say, but look at what they do. You know, they're, they're inefficient. You know, they, they, they can't get her done. We can get her done. We Republicans. So yeah, I think that would be potentially very successful, but I think Obviously, the free market, you know, let's shrink government until we get drowned in a bathtub kind of faction is still out there. And just a general suspicion of, of government action in general is sort of like, you know, guilty until proven innocent. 
Yeah. So, and and I I think we want to we want to move to closing thoughts relatively soon. Mm-hmm. But to, to sort of offer a curveball in the other direction. I mean, it seems like one one thing I take from this conversation is that on the left, there's really too much dominance by the sort of intellectual elite component of the party, the the think mm-hmm. tanks, the staffers, etc. On the right, it seems like you're saying there's not enough that you know the yeah. they're doing a lot of interesting work, but they aren't going anywhere with it. So so I mean, is this infrastructure valuable today? The think tanks are, you know, th- think tanks are notwithstanding your own employer. Uh, think tanks products in the 70s, 80s. They sort of did specific in the 90s a little bit. They were they were sort of solving a particular set of problems in the post-war and the breakdown of the post-war consensus. Is there a role for an intellectual elite or have they, we become too institutionalized and too sort of seeking our own interests rather than being productive members of the conversation. You just moved from one think tank to another. Is the industry as it were useful still? Yeah, I would say on net, yes. I think way less useful than it could be, but I'm glad it's out there, you know, sort of not trying to be too parochial about this, but I think it is far less effective and useful than it could be because so much of it is is essentially advocacy at this point. It's been captured by, you know, various ideological trends within both parties and the associated donors. So yeah, a lot of the stuff that comes out of a lot of these places is just crap. You know, it's not really contributing to a conversation. It's just trying to make a partisan point in the context of some debate that's going on in the Hill or some electoral campaign that's coming up. And I I think that's all very boring, not interesting. But I think that there's still a lot of useful work being done at think tanks, especially when it's using data. You know, and is playing straight with with the data and playing by the rules. I think there's mm-hmm. a there's something to be said for nonprofit organizations that do this. You know, on the left, we see even some of the better organizations that used to basically just do data stuff now, sort of moving to this all encompassing mission creep, sort of ideological injections into their 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 studies that I think is is not helpful and not very interesting and is undermining their effectiveness. But, you know, I'm not ready to, <laughs> I'm not ready to do seppuku yet as a think tank person, you know, so I'm hopeful that the conversation will just get better over time and that there's still a, still a role for it. But it is, it is nevertheless the case that an enormous share of the output that comes out from think tanks is completely worthless. Wow. <laughs> just said, you said seppuku. You, did, you, made, you just made you just made a joke about you know a, a Japanese cultural practice. Wow, you, you've definitely gone <laughs> yeah, to the AI line. There, man. Yeah, you there. can't. Yeah, I couldn't have done that at CAC. You would have. <laughs> no, if no, you had no. it left, you would have been fired. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Aaron, what are your what are your concluding thoughts? Your takeaway? I guess I am I am struck by the sense that you know. Both parties, I think maybe it was Peter Thiel or someone else, but you know that, that line in The Dark Knight when the Joker says, this is what happens when an unmovable force meets an unstoppable object. I mm-hmm. think Peter Thiel may have said something like this, that it's, it's you know, now we have the opposite where it's like a, you know, this is what happens when an insubstantial force meets like a, you know, flimsy object, right? Where the, the competition is sort of who's worse, right? Both sides yeah. have... You know, not exactly the same problems, but they're they're both in different ways are kind of structurally and institutionally dependent on on views and and organizations and kind of taking positions that repel a lot of voters. And so ultimately, kind of 
now that sort of if you're going to predict how anything will you know shake out what you're effectively asking is will kind of the structural pathologies of the democratic party be worse or less bad than the structural pathologies of the republican party and because both are so freaking bad it i'm left thinking i don't really know because you know the the, the trump january 6 stuff like that all I think really does have the potential to 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 really screw the Republicans over if they don't get away from it. But as you say, right, it's a political market. So hopefully, eventually, market forces work and we have two parties that are a little less shitty than the ones that we have right now. But yeah, that's really all I have. Charles, what's what's your take? That's very cheery. Yeah, I mean, no, I look, I think I walked into the conversation instead of wondering how did this slash in the pan, I said walk out more afraid to my suspicion that a lot is flashing the pan in the sense of ultimately the median voter theorem will reassert its dominance of the political marketplace. On the other hand, I think there's an interesting there's an interesting model here where basically the there's 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 a constant balancing between a party's constituencies or one of the constituencies is voters and the other constituency is like the people who actually work for and otherwise provide the infrastructure around the party, which means both sort of the people who are directly the party, but also the the broader universe of think tanks, commentators, et cetera. And those, I mean, look, people, I, I, I may have said this before on the show, I definitely said this to lots of people in real life, people who work in or indeed even care about politics are crazy. Like, like a vanishing, it's just one example of vanishing a small fraction of the population gives money to political campaigns. The sort of person who thinks it's a good idea to spend $1,000, $100 on like, a house race as opposed to anything else is crazy person. I, you know, I do this for a living, so I can say that. And so, you know, I think, I think that one argument I could find persuasive, although I have to think about it more, is that the this infrastructure that is powered by again crazy people, myself included, people who are well away from the median voter, that that infrastructure is increasingly able to compete with the baseline interests of the median voter, in which case the infrastructure is the problem, at least on the party level. Maybe there are benefits to the infrastructure, as as Roy put it, put it but I don't know. Yeah. So I'm not... Also, okay. I mean, this is, this is a big can of worms, so we don't need to talk about it, but I just think it's worth raising in the interest of completeness. I mean, we didn't really discuss the primary system yeah. oh, that yeah, much, but... Can of worms, yeah. That, that, that <laughs> does see... I mean, I mean... But on both sides, that seems to fuel extremism. And, you know, I, I am, I, I'm going to sound like a, a boring neoliberal normie shill, but yeah. I think fewer primaries would be Another strong opinion be better. Yeah, uh, yeah, sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry, populist listeners. It would be better if, if you had less power and, and, <laughs> Any, that's a different on that on that note we'll uh we'll do some recommendations aaron have a recommendation right you if you have a plug something you want to something you want to tell our readers our listeners about whether from your own work or somebody else's that you think is relevant well, find interesting we'll come to you in just one second aaron why don't okay. you go first so we got yeah so so i don't have a super in-depth intellectual one but one thing that i think we did not discuss today was the role of was gender and sex polarization. And on that topic, I would commend to you a recent episode that Barry Weiss did on her podcast. She's a, she, I would say is a friend of the pod. And the episode is a debate between Jill. Well, we'll change that one day. The, the episode is a debate. No, no, no. I say we should, we should have her on the pod. Oh yeah. 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 The episode is a debate between a Jill Bilio bitch or what, the, the very feminist. Yeah. Yeah. 
And Louise Perry, who's a British writer who just wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And the reason I mm -hmm. think it's kind of tangentially relevant to what we're talking about today is these are, I think, all, all three women, including Barry. I mean, they're, they're not Christian conservatives, right? They are not people who would like Republicans. Even Louise, you know, she's in the UK, but she clearly she, she's not a fan of the Christian right. But in the course of this conversation, what I think you see is that there's a lot of dissatisfaction among young people, and I think in particular among young men, that probably feeds into some of the Democrats' problems, right? There, there's like some crazy statistic that, that, you know, young men who vote Democrats, like, what is it, like 40% of them or something don't identify as feminists. Like, it's actually really, I mean, feminism. That's bullshit. That's from the SPLC's <laughs> survey, which is okay, so but, obviously but, nonsense. But, 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 but. <laughs> Wait a minute, are you saying the SPLC is it completely reliable? I'm just, I'm, I'm so okay. okay. Sure. Survey results that are you can't okay. argue to anybody but, else. But, but I, uh, but I, but uh, you know, I would just say what I would just say is there. I think there is a lot of evidence of kind of a a a, a deep kind of inchoate dissatisfaction with current sexual and gender norms that probably you know is not going to deliver Republicans some kind of like just you know totalizing lock on young men, but probably is driving some of this, especially I would imagine among kind of more stereotypically machismo cultures like Hispanics, right? I mean, I, I think it is safe to say that the Democrats are a kind of more feminized party in various ways, and certain cultures and demographics, especially the male ones, have, I think, understandable, valid yeah, reasons for not, this out and this for, not, <laughs> for not liking this. Yes, yes, do it. And and so I recommend this discussion because right. I think it, it will, it, 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 it the guys it, and their moms feeds basement. into this. Yeah, it feeds. It does. It will. It, it, I think it's a, it's it's kind of a good supplement to what we've been talking about. I'll mm -hmm. meet indirectly. So, Charles, what what's your recommendation? I'm gonna go ahead and plug the young young people aren't happy because they are married. I'm gonna Correct. go ahead and plug a classic that I'm in the middle of reading with some friends, including Aaron. I don't know if you've done the reading. Nathan Glazer, Daniel Patrick Moynihan's 1963 classic, Being on the Melting Pot study of race and ethnicity in new york city making in substance the point that as 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 they put it the thing about the melting pot is that it didn't happen that race and ethnicity remain relevant and important to city politics even then and certainly even now it's you know sort of significant as an early neoconservative text as well yeah roy do you have a do you have a plug for our for our listeners something something they should check out Right. Well, I have, we did discuss Hispanics. So I have a piece on Hispanic voters coming out in the Saturday Wall Street Journal. Of course, everybody should. Well, you can't pre-order our book yet because it's not on Amazon. But when, where, where have all the Democrats gone with my pal John Judas comes out? I think it couldn't be more relevant to the discussion we're, we're having. And my final recommendation would be, I don't know if pe people's appetite for data, but if you want to really understand what's happened to Western democracies in a raw, descriptive sense in terms of the parties of the left and right, pick up Political Power and Social Cleavages by Thomas Piketty et al. Because it's got mm. an enormous amount of data that is total food for thought in terms of what's happened to the parties of the working class in the Western world. And it's something, it's something to, to ponder as we, we look into the the dim, dimly lit future. Okay. Well, I commend that all of that to all of our guests, to all of our listeners. Thank you, Barry, for joining us on today's show. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. 
listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, ballot mules that you would like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Severium. That's about all the time that we can give to this episode. So until next week, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Severium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon. 